This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello, and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at all of our favorite horror films from the classic the camp to the cringe through the lens of disability. I am your host, Nicole, and I am thrilled to have you here. So what is on the examination table for this episode? Going to change things up a little bit and not necessarily go the horror route. Instead, we are going to be looking at the 1992 thriller Jennifer 8 directed by Bruce Robinson and written by Bruce Robinson and starring Andy Garcia, Uma Thurman, Kathy Baker, Lance Henriksen, and a small role by the one and only John Malkovich. This was a suggestion from Joe Lipset, who is a voice that you hear on the pod quite a bit, from shows like White Ladies in Crisis, and also a really powerful and leading voice behind the scenes at Anatomy of a Scream as well. So thank you, Joe, for the suggestion, and I'm excited to talk about this one. So let's just get right to it. Sergeant uh, Chamberlain Frederick Ross, we have an appointment. No one can see what Jennifer saw. He was standing right where you are, kind of breathless like you. Well, we had a real bad murderer up here a couple of years ago. Girl with no head and no hands. I believe the code is Jennifer. No one can imagine what Jennifer felt. I think I found something horrible, sir. I think I found a hand. What's with all this Jennifer stuff? These cases aren't connected, Yes, John. sir, I think they may be. He's a crazy man. And to my certain knowledge, he has killed eight girls. Not a lot of support for that scenario, though, is there? But one man suspects why she could be next. If I promise to stop being a cop, will you promise to stop being a witness? She had a little young view, bro. You had a lousy life with a lousy wife. Is that why you need to pick on this little blind girl? you can control her. Our blind lady has been attacked again. Why does he want to kill me? Because he thinks you're a witness. There is no serial killer. You stick her name up in neon and there is still no serial killer. I love you. Are my lips lying to you? John, what's happening? Is my mouth lying to you? He was here. I've got a back feeling about this. Is that you, John? I've been doing this too long to be wrong. What the? There is a bad man out there. I don't know if he's in the next room or in the next state. And I don't know what his trigger is. If he's in the room with her, she's dead. Andy Garcia, Uma Thurman, and John Milkovich. Is anyone there? Jennifer 8, 
All right. So I am going to have to bust out the Wikipedia plot synopsis for this one because there are bits and pieces that get a little bit difficult to follow. Los Angeles detective John Berlin is teetering toward burnout after the collapse of his marriage. At the invitation of an old friend and colleague, also his brother-in-law, uh, Freddie Ross, Berlin heads to a rural northern California town for a job with the Eureka police force. Berlin rankles his new uh, colleagues, especially John Taylor, who was passed over for promotion to make room for Berlin. After finding a woman's severed hand in a garbage bag at the local dump, Berlin reopens the case of an unidentified murdered girl nicknamed Jennifer, which went unsolved despite full-time six-month effort by the department. Berlin notes an unusual large number of scars on the hand, as well as wear on the fingertips, which he realizes came from reading Braille, determining that the girl is blind. He begins to believe that the cases are related. Berlin does his best to convince Freddy and his fellow officers of his suspicions, but Taylor and police chief Citrin refuse to believe that the hand found at the dump is in any way connected to the other cases. After consulting his former colleagues in Los Angeles, Berlin discovers that in the previous four years, six women, most of them blind, have either been found dead or are still missing, all within a 300-mile radius of San Diego. He becomes convinced that Jennifer was the seventh victim, and the girl whose, whose hand was found at the dump is Jennifer 8, or victim number 8. While investigating the links between the dead and the missing blind girls, he meets blind music teacher Helena Robertson. Uh, determining that her roommate, Amber, was the eighth victim. Berlin becomes obsessed with the case, despite an almost complete lack of hard, hard evidence, and becomes romantically involved with Helena, who resembles his ex-wife. After an attack on Helena, uh, Ross accompanies Berlin on a stakeout at the institute where Helen, uh, Helena lives in a dorm, after leaving Helena with Ross's wife, Margie, who is uh, Berlin's sister. When they see a flashlight shining on the same floor as Helena's part apartment, Berlin investigates and is knocked unconscious by the killer, who then shoots and kills Ross with Berlin's uh, 32 pistol. A grueling interrogation of Berlin by FBI, a special agent St. Anne, ensues. St. Anne makes clear to Berlin that he figures that he figures him for Ross's murder, but also inadvertently reveals information which helps Berlin realize that Sergeant Taylor is the true killer. Berlin tells St. Anne that and Citrin that he believes the killer who he believes the killer to be, but seductions are met with disbelief. Berlin is arrested for Ross's murder, but is bailed out by Margie, who does not believe that Berlin is the killer. Upon making bail, Berlin returns to Margie's house, only to learn that Margie has taken uh, Helena back to the Institute. Fearing that Helena and Margie are in danger, Berlin rushes to the Institute, but fails to arrive ahead of Taylor, who breaks in and chases Helena through the dorm. Finally catching up to her, 
Taylor is shocked to discover that the woman he had been pursuing is actually Margie. She shoots Taylor dead, avenging her husband, and closing the case. And that is Jennifer 8. It sounds a little bit more complicated than it actually is, but like I said, there were bits that were really, I think, got a little muddled for me. I think because of quick cuts and things. Um, but I'm going to first talk about just kind of my overall thoughts and feelings about the film. And then talk about some of the disability components. So overall, I thought that this film was pretty good. Um, like I said, I think it gets a bit muddled at times. But I think the performances are really strong, um, particularly Lance Henriksen as Freddie Ross and Kathy Baker as Marjorie and Uma and Andy, I think, are also quite good. I think really the one that seemed to be, that kind of stood out to me as being a little bit more hammy was John Malkovich as St. Anne, definitely chewing on some, some scenery in his interrogation scenes but overall I think the acting is good where the film kind of falls apart a little bit for me is in the story just because it isn't really cohesive it's a simple kind of story um, and very much in I think keeping with you know these types of thrillers you know kind of these police uh, small town um, you know, the calls coming from inside the house type thrillers. And, but the story, I don't know, especially the motive of John Taylor, uh, being the killer. I didn't really get it. It just didn't really connect, um, for me. There's also this element of the age gap here between Uma's character, Helena, Helena, um, I say it both ways, which is kind of strange. Uh, and Berlin. There's some comments made uh, by mainly Freddie and uh, Margie about the the age gap and him being a bit older than her. I think in real life there's maybe a 14-year age difference between Uma and Andy Garcia. So it's not something that's super... Um, I guess problematic. She is in her twenties, making him in his thirties. It's a little I, I can see the ick factor. It's more an issue of the fact that she is a witness in an investigation. There's a little bit of infantilization, I think, because of the age thing. Also, the fact that she. You know, there's that, that power dynamic of her being the witness and Berlin being the detective. So I, I always find it weird that that dynamic is often overlooked in narratives. Like no one really, I mean, there's always people who have something to say about it, but there's, that's kind of it. So I don't know. Um, I would say that maybe there's a dash of, you know, infantilization due to her disability, but I would say that's minor to, to honestly non-existent. That, you know, the 
they're not necessarily treating her. And by they, I'm mainly talking about Freddie and Margie in Berlin. Um, they're not really treating her any differently because of her disability. Um, so I, again, I didn't really find the motives of the killer once we find out who he is, John Taylor, as really being that interesting or really that developed. Um, it's kind of confusing. He is connected to a school for the blind, um, but he's not blind. And there's just not, I, it, it's really just kind of half-baked as to why he's singling out these women. I think it's also fairly telegraphed early in the film that he is the killer. Uh, he's the cop that has, you know, the, the soured relationship with Berlin. And he was, I think, the, the lead detective on uh, the case before um, it had been closed and Berlin reopened it. Like, he was, I think, one of the leads. And, you know, I I don't know. I just, that was really uh, underwhelming and just kind of made the end of the film fall apart. But, again, the acting, I think, is is quite good. And outside of that, I think, you know, there's some clunky bits of the story especially like with the beginning when they find the severed hand um he Berlin is getting pushed back when he's trying to um you know connect these to the previous crimes the previous murders and missing uh women and at one point I think uh Citrin says, well, you know, maybe it was just, you know, the hand was just hospital waste, um, medical garbage that had been thrown out. And that makes absolutely no sense. Um, there is nothing that would track with that. Um, I don't think that's how it works, but I don't know. Um, just some, some clunky bits and pieces, but Overall, I think if you um, are looking for something to watch on kind of a lazy afternoon, you're going to do a lot worse than this because, I, again, the performances really, I think, keep it afloat. And especially if you like kind of these 90s thriller films, I think this is going to be right up your alley. But I want to talk a little bit now more explicitly about the disability component. The character of Helena, played by Uma Thurman, I think is an interesting one. Definitely falls into the woman in peril trope. And we do see the moments of, you know, I, I think I've mentioned this in the home invasion and disability film discussions where you know, the disability almost becomes kind of like a, a device to ramp up the tension 
you know, the person in peril can't hear or can't see the intruder, the predator. We catch our breath, you know, waiting to see how they're going to be able to get out of danger. And it's, it's a device and it can be done, I think, really effectively. I would say this movie, um, it's smart about it. It's not, uh, kind of consistent, um, and overwrought thing used, but, um, there's some really strong moments, um, especially the first kind of encounter that Helena has with the killer. She's in the bathtub, and, um, it's just a nice use of kind of mounting tension. We get to see a little bit of adaptive living in this moment, how she, you know, makes sure that the bath is at a good temperature. She doesn't get burned and she doesn't overfill the tub. So I would say that overall, um, the, the character of Helena is really subdued. Kind of, I, you get very strong introvert vibes. Uh, I think this is underscored by the fact that there's a party scene uh, a Christmas party scene, and it's the first time that we see uh, Helena in a big kind of group setting, and she goes to the party and kind of has a meltdown. Uh, she feels, I think, a little overwhelmed navigating the space and chatting with lots of people, and so she goes into kind of a, a closet, and she's found by Berlin. Um, and is really distraught. I think this is to kind of connect her disability with this, to say that, you know, she was kind of uh, overwhelmed trying to navigate the conversations because it was just a lot of people talking, talking loudly, and I, you know, I think that that is probably something that could be connected to the disability, but is not something you know, and with the visually impaired and, and blind folks I know, not necessarily something I've encountered. Helena is a little bit more developed, I would say, than a lot of these love interest woman in peril characters in films of this genre. She is a music teacher, and we learn a little bit more about that. We learn that she uh, became blind following a car accident when she was 14. And when she is first meeting with Berlin, before they really start to get to know each other and, you know, form a, a deeper relationship, she does make a comment about not having any special abilities or, you know, she doesn't have the sixth sense, I think she says. So I, I thought that was a good way to kind of assert the fact that this isn't going to be, you know, a disabled character that has these uh, heightened abilities that, you know, pop out at the most convenient time. So, um, yeah, I thought that was kind of refreshing. I think also another aspect of, of disability that stood out to me is a little bit of manipulation 
I guess you could say. There are a couple of jokes made about, you know, what Berlin looks like and how old he is. And I think Elena makes one of the jokes. I, I think either Berlin or Freddie and Margie comment on another, but it's just kind of this, oh, well, I'm going to tell uh, Helena that I'm 57 years old. I think that is the moment that came, that comes to mind first. Um, Helena and Berlin, their relationship has progressed a bit, and Helena says that, she, you know, Freddie had told her what Berlin looks like, that he was fat, and they have this back and forth, and he's like, oh, well, and, and I'm 57, and she's like, oh, well, I don't mind. And it, I don't know, jokes like this always just rub me the wrong way sometimes, because it, it I don't think it's funny to use someone's disability to um, mislead them. Now, it's played off as a joke, and I think we know that he's not actually doing that, but I don't know. It's just, I, I just don't find it something worth joking about. Um, yeah, I guess that's, that's that. But uh, in terms of other disability things, um, I talked a little bit about, I think in the Don't Breathe episode, about how individuals with disabilities are targeted as victims of crime due to being a vulnerable population. The weakness in how the story ends, the movie ends with the reveal of the killer, I think, takes a lot of air out of any, you know, thing that you can really sink your teeth into in terms of why these women are targeted. Another thing I also want to, um, I guess, go back and point out, I know this feels, my notes feel a little bit jumbled here, in the, in the Wikipedia plot synopsis, it talks about how Berlin makes the connection to the victims being blind uh, based on the worn uh, down fingertips of the severed hand and correlating that to reading Braille. Actually, it's that, but I think first is the uh, street uh, crossing sign that is uh, adapted with a voice prompt for folks that are blind so they know when it is safe to cross the street. That is what kind of really, I think, pulls the pieces together. And that was a really nice and interesting component to it um, because that would be something, especially in an area, in a city, we, this is a small town, but they have a school for the blind. Um, you know, they would have uh, something like that at that time. I know now it is fairly commonplace, but this is a part of, uh, you know, going to a school 
for the blind or um, someplace similar to this. I think I've mentioned before that I worked for the Department for the Blind in Iowa for a brief time. And this, I think, operated in a similar way to the Institute in this film. There was a focus on kind of skill um, development for folks to live independently. And part of that would be cane training and travel training so that folks could get used to using a cane if it was something new to them and would then learn how to actually use the cane and, you know, walking around, um, how to navigate safely, how to listen for different cars, listen for different sounds, um, learn where stoplights and stuff were so that, you know, they could press the button, get the prompts to know when to cross. So yeah, that, I, I thought that was kind of a, an interesting little bit there. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of this stuff is handled very lightly. Um, we don't really go in depth with a lot, which kind of makes it hard to really go into the disability component because it's obviously a, a factor to the character, a part of the character, but it's, she's both a, a huge presence, but also just kind of there some of the time. So yeah, um, I guess that's kind of all I have to say on Jennifer 8. A bit of a short episode, but I, yeah, I like this movie. I think it's a completely fine way to spend, like I said, a lazy afternoon. Um, if you're looking for something to watch, I don't know if this is, you know, would be considered a groundbreaking entry into this genre, but I think the performances are really, really strong, and I love Kathy Baker. So it's always great to see her, and I think she's really cool as Margie. Um, I, I really like the relationship that she forms with uh, Helena. They have a really close relationship and become really uh, fast friends. And it seems like a, a really sweet relationship. And yeah, uh, so yeah, that's Jennifer 8. Uh, thanks again to Joe for this suggestion, and uh, I hope that, you know, maybe now you have another film on a watch list. This is currently on Max, so if you've got Max, formerly HBO Max, uh, you've, got, you've got this at your fingertips. So to close things out, I have to give a huge, huge thank you to Anatomy of a Scream as always, for being the heart and home of Bodies of Horror. And a huge thank you to you, as always, for listening. I'm super, super excited about the upcoming episodes on the docket. I don't want to give anything away. I always feel weird doing that because the minute that I say, oh, well, this is what the next episode is going to be unless I actually have it recorded in the can and good to go. You know, things can always change and and I don't want to have to go back and be like, well, I was going to do this, but now it's this. Not that that's the biggest deal, but, you know, better safe than sorry, I guess. But I have some amazing episodes on the calendar and with lots of guests coming up. 
So I think uh, you guys will be in for a treat and you're going to get a pretty long run of episodes where it is not just me chit-chatting. So I think that will be really, really exciting. I'm, I'm excited to get these recorded and chat with some amazing folks. So I hope that you'll really enjoy those upcoming episodes. We are in the thick of June, so I hope that everyone is having a wonderful and celebratory pride. If you are wanting to uh, delve even deeper into LGBTQ horror, I obviously have to give the plug for horror queers. They're doing a really kind of cool thing of, you know, uh, each day having a different theme of film. So really great if you're on Twitter to kind of go and, um, you know, follow those threads um, and get some film suggestions. That's kind of what I've been doing. I've watched a handful, but uh, it's good because I'm learning about a bunch of new films. So I'm really excited uh, to kind of keep that list going. If you want to reach out and say, hey, offer uh, suggestions for films that you would like to see covered here. I absolutely love that. Uh, you can shoot me an email at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com and I'm still on Twitter for the time being. So uh, all of that is going to be in the notes for the episode. So give that uh, a peek if you want to reach out. And with all of that said, until next time. The Anatomy of a Scream, Pod Squad.